Welcome to Never Rewrite. I'm Isaac Askew. And I'm Jeffrey Sherman. And today we're discussing how company culture makes or breaks your teams. So Isaac, how, how does company culture make a team? In every way. <laughs> so this is kind of a topic that's been kind of close to my heart, uh, especially after, you know, working at a company, uh, working at a few different companies and kind of analyzing the good, the bad, and the ugly of each different team, I'll say, but also how, it, I mean, each company kind of facilitates the way the team behaves, which facilitates the way you behave in the team. So you, you may, like, just with, with any group of people, there's a group of people you feel comfortable around. There's a group of people mm -hmm. you might not feel as comfortable around. Or there might just be people you don't really jive with. Like, you feel fine around them, but they just, you don't really click. So you don't really kind of get into, like, a good conversation kind of thing. Um, and so there's, uh, since we're all people um, and we have those kind of same relationships at work, um, there are types of work cultures that are kind of uh, typical in today's uh, tech industry that can kind of facilitate good or bad cultures in the team as it kind of that, that, that same kind of feeling cascades down. Um, so one one easy to digest example is like if you have hustle culture at the top of the company where everyone's like, you got to go, go, go. We have to deliver, have to deliver. That generally speaking will make its way down to you. <laughs> Whereas um, some uh, some cultures like uh, that are not as like a parent, like you might have like a, a, an internal team culture that's like, we want to make sure that we trust each other or we want to make sure that there's no ego or want to treat each other this way or that way because that helps facilitate kind of our internal bubble. So you've got like your own bubble of the way things work with your team and then you've got like a company message that can can sometimes pop that bubble <laughs> or help the bubble grow is the bubble necessarily a good thing can the bubble the way you described it the bubble is something good and cohesive about the team so this team cohesive bubble does it have to be a, a positive force or could the team like if you have a team that is a not so much a tech team but like a sales team definitely there are hustler teams and there are more laid back uh, teams. Can the bubble be toxic with the company influencing, trying to influence it in a positive way? Sure. I mean, anything can backfire. <laughs> you can have any kind of company message that was supposed to be positive that could backfire. And like you mentioned, a sales team, for example, might like the hustle culture, whereas a uh, an engineering team might not like that as much. So I'm not necessarily saying one is good or bad. And the bubble itself, I like using that term bubble too, because like uh, it's kind of like almost indicative of like political bubbles where like you're surprised mm -hmm. when there's someone outside it thinking a different way. We we tend to do that with people we surround ourselves with. We make these bubbles. And so you could have your own good bubble of people that are, you know, slow paced doing things in a decent way that's not going to burn out. And that same bubble might not work for other people. So it's 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 definitely just like any other conversation about you know, good culture and relationships and people, it's its going to be complicated. I don't have a cut and dry mm -hmm. answer. Um, but the the things that help teams, which will be like the kind of the first part I wanted to get into, there's, there's certain things I've seen with teams that I've been in that helps that team uh, enjoy each other, deliver more, you know, not feel so antagonized sometimes, you know. Mm -hmm. So one of the first things that I noticed, or rather one of the things I noticed over time um, is that uh, having a sense of trust in your team uh, really helps 
the team kind of bond. It helps you grow as a person, uh, helps you deliver. Uh, so what I mean by sense of trust is like um, one of the subcategories I have here for sense of trust is uh, being able to make uh, mistakes. So you need to be able to make a mistake on your team, push bad code, do something dumb, uh, and for it to be uh, like a learning experience, not just something where people jump on you and antagonize you. Uh, so you need to trust that basically your your colleagues have your back. Um, now, is that because uh, that's an interesting point, because I, I could see if you've got a team that's very high in trust, mm-hmm. and I happen to see this at, at, at a place, which is why it immediately came to mind. Uh, we're like, oh, yeah, yes, we trust and, you know, bad things happen and, and we trust and we're not going to get all uptight about it. But outside the bubble, everybody was looking at this team like these people just push shit code continuously. <laughs> and then they high five themselves uh, for trusting each other and not getting upset uh, that they've totally <laughs> broken everything twice this week. And so trust becomes uh, an excuse to not do good work. You know, it sure. goes back to that, the company culture where, oh, we're, we're, we've got trust. And then that trust becomes a way to avoid responsibility. That happens in bubbles. Absolutely. I've definitely seen a couple of teams do that. <laughs> it's really funny. <laughs> the concept <laughs> of people high-fiving each other as they do terrible things is pretty, uh, it's real. But I think that um, your bubble of your one team is also uh, inside of a larger bubble of a managerial team. Um, so you have managers that can talk and share feedback too. So the same kind of trust you have with your own colleagues, uh, you're also going to be able to, to be to to give critical feedback, constructive feedback to other people. So if you have a team, for example, that's high fiving each other and they got great trust, they're going to have a larger team um, or a team above them rather of managers. And one of those, those managers, if there's a good sense of trust. And being able to give honest feedback and know you've got your back, they're going to say, hey, look, you've got a good thing going in your team. You've built a great sense of camaraderie here. However, we think that, you know, it looks like there's been a couple of pushes lately that have broken some things. That there's some, some basically you have to kind of semi-burst that bubble. Uh, it still goes back to trust. You can have uh, isolated bubbles of work, but still have oversight of those bubbles. Hmm. In general, knowing your team or even your manager particularly is working in your best interest uh, is, a, is a good way to feel like you can deliver code, be your best at the company, uh, and knowing that there's like a sense of um, it's about us and not just uh, attacking one fault, that kind of thing. Like, for example, a good manager, too, if you if you trust your manager is out to help you, like we, mm-hmm. know, we know the manager's there. The, co- the company's paying the manager too. And we know the manager has to also get things done. So it's not just about like a, a yes manager that makes the, the person underneath the manager feel good. But a good manager will find this nice Venn diagram of, oh, I see what you need or what you want, what you want to work towards in your career. And I also see something the company needs delivered. How about we have a conversation here about this kind of Venn diagram of interest? That way I can get something done for the company because that's my job. And I can help you grow in your career. So there's still that kind of sense, like, I, and I want to be able to show up at my one-on-ones and say, hey, this is what I want. And my manager say, I think I can make that happen. And he's not just placating my fears. He's actually trying to help me make that happen. And I trust him. So how does that work? Like, how does the overall company culture 
I mean, first of all, the, the company, I guess, picks the manager. So that's one way mm -hmm. that they would impact and, and shape the team culture. Uh, but how does the overall company culture shape how the manager works? Like, does that, is there a lot of push with, you know, if, if the leadership is saying hustle, 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 and the manager is pushing back, does that impact the team? Yeah. If he's able um, to make a bubble? If he's able to push back, that's that's uh, excellent, right? So you have certain teams that you're going to be in with the manager, they're, they're going to be told what to do and there's no excuses. You get this done and they'll replace you or something like that. And that's kind of an aggressive uh, team to be on or, or company to be at rather. There are good, like the best managers I've worked under are the ones that can say, that can, that can field all of these requests and demands and hustle culture and say, you tell me what needs to get done and I'm going to go to my team and find out how to work with them to deliver it. It's about like every manager is going to know their own culture of their team and how to work with that team and how their team responds best to things. So yes, certain companies will go out of their way and say, this has got to be done. And that, that, that culture at the top can affect things, but a good manager will push back and say, I hear you. We understand this needs to get done. I am a manager. You've employed me <laughs> to manage people. You're going to have to trust me. Uh, I know my team better than you do. I've worked with them daily. I can make this happen, but let me get this done in a way that will uh, not break this team. You've described less than 50% of the managers I've worked with over the decades. <laughs> Which is <laughs> <it's> sad. <Far laughs> <less. laughs> well, also too, like there's a cliche that people don't quit their company, they quit their manager. And I, I feel mm -hmm. like that's been true in almost every case. So still being able to build trust, being able to have honest feedback with somebody, um, or even the manager being able to be somebody um, who can hear you and listen to you and actually go, you know, mm -hmm. there, there's some, sometimes there's just bad, awful people to work with. <laughs> and that's, that's, that's something too. That's like, you can't really push past that, unfortunately. So you have to be able to collaborate with people uh, and that, but that still requires a sense of trust. And another thing that's, underneath, Oh, go ahead. Well, can we dig deeper on that? Cause I, I think that's sure. an interesting. I, I've worked with a decent number of people that I didn't like, uh, but there's mm -hmm. been, you know, I, I've, I've been working for probably over, over two decades and I would say there's been maybe four or five people that I actually felt hostility towards. Oh, okay. <laughs> right. And it was just like, you know, not even oil and water, more of like uh, oil and uh, a lighter, where if you mix the two, it's just yeah. going to explode. How does the, the company influence how that happens? Like what to do there? Well, I don't know if the company can in this case, if, if we're talking about the company as like the overarching presence. Well, the, the company culture, right? So if you've yeah. got a company culture that's hustle mm -hmm. and you've got two people who are combustible together, well, at, when you have a company that's hustle and you have two people that are combustible, the kind of the typical thing I see is you, you put them together until one of them combusts uh, <laughs> and then you are left with the other. Uh, but imagine a healthier environment might might approach that differently yeah i think a healthier environment i mean there's a couple of things you can do there's some people that are just not going to get along well and it's not necessarily your job to play psychologist at work i've also not been a manager so i can't really tell you know like the best way to solve some of the people problems but i would say from just a inherent sense of what to do in those regards i would 
have conversations with those people and see if they can learn to work together, understand like, what's the issue? Why are you <laughs> fire and gasoline here in this case, instead of oil and water? What What is the trigger points here? Uh, you know, like, let's try to figure that out. And if it's something where like, they're not going to be able to work well together, well, you only have a couple of options. Uh, if one of them is being the aggressor, then they're going to have to have, you know, a come to Jesus moment <laughs> and talk to him and be like, look, we're not delivering. And it's because you are being aggressive in the situation and you're actually impacting the team. And that's probably an HR discussion. Um, the other one is you can also just see if you can move teams, find different little bubbles here. If people work well in their bubbles and you have people, uh, this person can work really well in a different bubble, gets really along or gets along really well with another person on their team. Maybe that's a gentle way to do it. Again, I'm not a manager in this case, but um, I would imagine the there's only so much you can force. Yeah. So bringing it back to kind of the, the things that are a company culture, team mobility. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been at places where their teams were highly, mo- people were highly mobile and switch teams all the time. And I've been at places where, you know, you would have needed somebody's manager's manager's approval to, to switch teams. Yeah. Well, again, this is a problem that will solve itself. <laughs> if things are, if they continue, if a team continues not delivering because of an issue, it will be very apparent <laughs> that at some point some something will come down. Um, so the well, actual. I'm going to, so what if you have a team and you have one highly productive mm-hmm. asshole and. <laughs> A team full of people who are frustrated by the asshole. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, the leadership's like this, this, this is your 10x engineer here, to use a cliche. And it's more, they're like a 15x. And you could literally get rid of the rest of the team. And it would still be more delivery than if we got rid of the asshole. Mm-hmm. How does, you know, and then company culture, but whether or not they're, gonna, they're willing to pull the trigger on, on that asshole, typically they're not. oh well again i mean it's my my conversation is more about the aspect of what makes teams work well together and not work well together not necessarily the decisions of what to do when they don't so in this case yeah if you have a 15x engineer which i I hate how cheesy that term is and they're they're actively making the rest of the team miserable like you're going to have churn in your team <laughs> someone's eventually going to have a breaking point and leave and then you're going to sour the sour the entire experience so again the actual things to do for those teams i've not been in a role where i can tell you directly or give the listener the best advice in this case all i know is that i have seen what happens and the people leave people get angry people complain there's like you don't deliver your team i mean yeah there one person can deliver for the rest of the team but in the end, other people on the team still like it's noticed that their pieces aren't being delivered. They're getting angry. They're not showing up to work. <laughs> you know, they're looking for different jobs. You're going to find you're still going to see an impact there. So okay. that brings me to actually the last point here is being able to own uh, failures at a team. You don't want a single point of failure. You don't want a 10x engineer or 15x engineer. Um, if they're if they're the type of person who's an asshole, like like this this straw straw man that we're inventing here and yeah let's say they're exceptional and they have just ego out the roof they are they don't take feedback well they don't take criticism well i think the way they do it is the best um 
and they build everything, then what happens when they leave? What happens when they're on vacation? Mm-hmm. You know, we think about bus factor here, like what happens um, in, the, in those cases. If they don't show up and then the rest of the team is left to pick up and that, oh, well, so-and-so is out, you have to do their work. And they haven't seen any of their work. They don't know how any of the processes work. It's a single point of failure. You you create just a soured mood for the entire team because one person is too probably afraid when it comes down to it from the psycho- psychological perspective uh, to share uh, their experience with the team, to share their work with the team, their processes. Um, you don't want to own like you want to own the, uh, own every failure as a team. So if something goes wrong, mm-hmm. it's not just one person's fault. And you want to own the successes of the team. You know, like, oh, this 15X engineer, thank you. Everyone bow down to this one person on the team who has carried us <laughs> to the heights of heaven here. So setting up cultures like that, that's that's just, that's when people talk about uh, a toxic culture, mm-hmm. that's how you create it. You let someone's ego or 10X engineer, you let that sit there until uh, they end up being that single point of failure. Because once that happens and shit hits the fan, and no one can pick up those pieces. Uh, you have tons of people on call that can't figure it out. You have people working extra. You have extra burnout. It all cascades from there. I remember, old man telling stories here. Uh, I remember <laughs> being on a team once where he wasn't even a, a anyway, a very egotistical person. Uh, and I'd been hired to reduce the bus factor from you know one to two. So my my job was there to so that if he something happened, I could help keep the things running. Uh, and he viewed mm-hmm. me as a threat. Oh, really? I, well, because he was a big egoist and he threw his weight around. Uh, his typical response when he didn't get his way was, well, I'm going to quit. <laughs> and, and so the first time he heard that, I was like, wow, that's pretty childish. And the second time I heard him say it, uh, I was like, wow, you got to fire this guy. And they didn't. And so I, I left the team after about nine months. So I was like, I, I, I'm done with this yeah. because there was never going to be a, any way I could get in because he, he was actively working to keep me out. Like my job was to be able to support and or replace him. And he was actively keeping me out because he didn't want me to be able to replace him because that would make him replaceable. <laughs> and I remember I did my exit interview and they're like, well, why are you leaving? I'm like, well, you hired me to, you know, be this guy's you know, counterpart and or replacement. And he views me as a threat, which I guess I get because he's a total tool. But, you know, you don't back me when it comes to actually being le- able to let me do my job, the job you hired me for. And so, you know, I'm I'm out of here, but let me tell you what's about to happen. And so I told the director, uh, you know, I told his manager, I told the director and I told the CTO, I'm like, look, if you can't get this guy under control and you can't, you either have to fire him next time he throws a tantrum and, it, and you know, just accept that you're going to have a terrible month or they're going to fire you because you can't control them. Yeah. And within two months of my leaving, they were all gone. They'd all been fired because they couldn't control this guy. That's that's one way to do it. That is well, that is a, a company culture. Yeah, that's company culture. And like like you said, you left. Right. So like I was saying earlier, like if, if you're on a team where someone's just not going to get along with you, there's only so much you can do. <laughs> Either you find a way to, to get along or or you leave. Either whether it's the team or the company, um, there's nothing else you can do. And actually, I was having a mentorship conversation with someone recently, and I was talking about like the idea of like team fits and company fits. 
and this is kind of probably something maybe hopefully someone out there needs to hear is occasionally you will be part of a team or a company that you're actually a bad fit for and it's not your fault. Like you want to do X, Y, Z in your career and they don't care about those things. Mm-hmm. It's not, the company's not bad for that. You're not a bad programmer for that or whatever your role is for that. Sometimes they're just a bad fit and the things you want to do and the things you're interested in, the company does not care about. And it's okay to leave that company and find a company that does care about that so you can grow your career. You're not betraying the company family or any of this crazy stuff people come up with after you've been, you know, in swept up in like a you know cult of personality for a company for a while. That there's there's a sign of a more mature engineer is the willingness to say, yeah, this is a bad fit. I'm out of here. Right. With with anything, anything in your life, to be honest, oh, yes, no one to say no, <laughs> no one to say actually this isn't right for me, and and not just kind of like torturing yourself trying to you know fit uh, uh, fit the wrong shape in the hole, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. So, um, so yeah, let's bring uh, let's let's pivot uh, unless you have any other ideas there into things that hurt the teams. Well, I don't think we brought it full, full circle in terms of. We're trying to talk about the team dynamic. So we never defined what mm-hmm. makes a good team culture. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, or we didn't even say that we we're trying for a strong team culture. We just said a strong team. Like what, mm-hmm. what are the properties of a strong team? You said, that, you know, they're being able to make mistakes, um, knowing that your manager has your best interest, mm-hmm. you know, non-judgmental code review, like, okay, having a team where it's basically a, a safe space where you can, you're safe to make mistakes. You're safe to do experiments. You have support for when things go wrong. Those are all things that make a great team. Uh, we talk, we touched on some things that companies can do to, yeah, to, to you know hurt, help or hurt those. But do we leave anything on the table about what what else goes into a great a good team and for what we're yeah. talking about? So so I want to be clear too. It's not necessarily I'm saying that we just need a safe space for for engineers because. Like you were talking about with the whole bubble of people high-fiving each other and not delivering, you still need to be challenged. And so that's why my my first subcategory there was like a sense of trust. And that also goes into not just people having your back, but people being able to give you honest feedback and you trust they're giving it to you because it's valid feedback and not just something passed down from leadership or not some kind of bullshit response or whatever. Uh, Someone can come to you and say, I think you need to work on this or we need to work on that. So that way you can actually improve as a team because you do need to get checked by other teams, other people, so you can grow. It's not just a a bubble in the worst sense of it where everyone believes the same thing because you still need that diversity of thought. And that comes from um, outside your team as well, right? Uh, but trust was like the overarching first category there. The other one was like we kind of got into, which is basically losing the ego. Don't have that 50 next engineer uh, being built on your team, being created. People aren't just hired as 50 next. They become these 50 next people who who think they're all that you know it's okay to lose your ego a bit show up imperfectly um so i have been this person before where i did not want to show off my code because it wasn't ready yet <laughs> right <laughs> i was i wanted to show a really nice clean code and show how good i was but i was actually my, my process of doing it was kind of dumb i would i would add as I went through and debugged, I would just like be refreshing and, and like debugging a really bad way, um, scattering a bunch of logs in here, just like, you know, just 
there was a better way to do what I was doing, but I didn't want people to see the process because it didn't look good. I wanted people to see the finished product and be like, wow, look what Isaac delivered. And that's a bad way to go about things. Mm. Um, because if you let others see your ugly coding process, which a lot of a lot of times is facilitated by pair programming, you can get feedback from people like, whoa, I see you're doing this this way. And not just so that's stupid. Why are you doing it that way? Which would be the bad judgmental way of approaching somebody but say hey you know i've noticed you this repetitive task that you're doing here i actually use this tool for that mm -hmm. or i use this thing over here for that this is my method of doing it and if you pair with people and you toggle who's the driver of that pairing session you get to see what other tools they use what other processes they use um learn how they think and then sometimes believe it or not other people do things better than you <laughs> or they have a better method so you've got to drop the ego and then also learn how other people think. Let other people, this is an important one too, where, where um, even if you know better as a senior, if you see a junior do something a different way, don't say it's wrong. Let them have their own experience. Let them make their own mistakes. Assuming it's not anything terrible, assuming it's just another solution to the problem. Um, right. Let people do like that. Much. Yeah, maybe you don't like it as much. Don't just tear them down. Be like, oh, that's an interesting solution. Because it's another creative thought. You want the diversity on your, uh, of thought on your team because you don't want everyone thinking exactly the same, having the exact same answers to the same problems. That would make a lot of your project management or, or your um, your ideation, I guess is the term for it, very <laughs> boring if everyone had the same ideas and the same solutions to a customer's problem. You want people to suggest whimsical things, dumb things, like let people have that kind of freedom to know I can suggest the first thing that comes to mind and someone's not going to tear me down for it. You know, or even if it's something funny, just laugh about it as a team. It's fine. So lose the ego. Pair with people to learn how other people think. Pairing doesn't have to be just a programming thing. If you're a programmer, it could just be work or shadow under somebody. If you're a project mm -hmm. manager, shadow, shadow other product, project managers. If you're a manager and you want to, and you, and you see how a senior manager works, shadow them. Just learn how other people think. Get, get, outside of the context that you know best about this role you know let you put yourself in the learning role again okay so if you're on a team uh and it's a good team mm -hmm. um what are the or let's let's take that back let's go the other way you're on a team and it's a bad team okay. right there's low trust or whatnot what are some things you can do to help improve it to, to get a transformation from a bad team to a good team. I mean, obviously you can, we, you co we covered that you could switch teams, switch companies, <laughs> but if you like the company or, or you see hope, mm -hmm. what are some things you can do to improve the team? I feel like that kind of goes back to the concept of pairing. Mm -hmm. So the first thing you need to do is get your team to communicate with each other. I think a lot of times teams don't get along or they're bad, bad teams for lack of a better word. Um, it's because they kind of isolate into little uh, areas of things to work on. So uh, instead of collaborating on a, a new project, someone who just really wants to get it done dives in there and does it by themselves and just kind of goes into a hole. And that's fine to do. I'm not saying everyone should always be pairing with people at every moment. It's fine mm -hmm. to do that. But uh, I, guess, I guess what I'm getting at is communication. Pairing is just another way of saying communicate with your team. You don't want to be a, a team of people that just says during stand-up what you're working on and then everyone disappears into their own holes because then you're not That's sharing not any of that knowledge. That's not a team. 
It's just like a loose collection of people <laughs> tied together by a daily stand-up, right? Right. Um, so uh, th- that would be the first thing. Um, communicate. And in, in communicating, by default, this is going to happen in any communicating group of people in the world. There is going to be people who agree and disagree with what you've said. And that's fantastic. Because <laughs> now you're learning a little bit about what other people think like, their decisions why they're coming to, uh, oh, I've seen this before. This is why I'm hypervigilant in this regard. You're like, okay, okay, I see what you're coming from here. Maybe that's not the same case here. And you have a big discussion. You start learning about how your colleagues think. Uh, you start empathizing with them as they come to you with their experiences and why they make their decisions. Communication in general, just learn learn who you're working with. Um, that's probably step one. Uh Step two is as you're doing that, and again, this is going to also kind of uh, lay the groundwork for you, is mm-hmm. as you start working with people, you're going to uh, start empathizing with them and uh, wanting, you're going to want them to succeed in their role, right? You're going mm-hmm. to, like, if um, if there's anything that goes wrong as your team, after you, after you become a team, it's just like you imagine, like, when you have, like, a squad in the military or something, and they're all like a band of brothers or whatnot. As you kind of build that camaraderie in your team, uh, if something goes wrong, um, you know it's not just your fault. It's like the it's like the it's the squad's fault, so to speak. It's the team's fault. So you're going to end up working like, especially as you start including people. Like again, if you're in your own bubble, you don't include people even in your own code reviews. You might try to just like sneak stuff in. You want to tag people mm-hmm. in for peer review for code review. And if people approve that and sign off on that, then it's, you know, it's the team is owning that success or a failure as a group because they all signed off on it. So you want to communicate, you want to build trust with your team, learn who you're working with, empathize with them, understand their decisions. And then whenever things go wrong, have their back, you know, be that, be that same person that you'd want for you if something went wrong and you, you knew it was your MR that merged that broke production. Someone come that in like, never oh, happens that was to us. me. Yeah. Every day. <laughs> yeah. There's a, there's the, um, the first two. Another is don't break that trust <laughs> for, 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 for a bad team. I, I've definitely, and I'm not joking when I say this, I've had a manager before where I've confided a one-on-one about, Oh, these are my concerns. These are things I'm working on. Here's the things in my career that I'm worried about. Here are my colleagues that I'm having trouble working along with. And they've, I, they've gone and told other people, my personal uh, one-on-ones to other people. Uh, and kind of broke that trust around them. So like, I knew that if I confided in this person, my concerns would end up uh, being scattered across other people. Or even if I had criticisms of people on my team that I was like trying to figure out how to work with somebody, they would just go and blab to the other person about it. Um, that's not a great situation. You've broken the trust in that regard. I can't come to you and be my honest self because I know that you know, you're going to... Uh, uh, Tell it to anybody else, uh, rather than it being like a confidential thing. I can't be really honest about my feedback with somebody because I know another person is going to be hearing it, and it's not just you. I, I once had a highly overreactive manager, uh, and I confided in him how frustrated I was by somebody. He's like, "Well, then let's just fire him." I was like, "Whoa, <laughs> let's not right. go that. This guy needs coaching, not not <laughs> firing." Maybe they came from a company where they had to keep doing that to people. (laughs) 
at that point, I couldn't confide in the guy anymore. I'm like, I, I have no idea how off the handle you're going to go off of anything I say. Yeah. Uh, and I am one to speak in hyperbole, which is <laughs> <laughs> just going to make things much, much worse. Um, or what was our main question here? Uh, it's just ways teams are bad. Well, ways that you can transform your teams. Uh, transform teams, yeah. Right. So, it, you know, it's building the trust is the way to transform a bad team to be better. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like breaking the trust is a way to take a good team and throw it in the toilet. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems like everything we're saying is around trust. Yeah, well, a ton of it is around trust for sure. Uh, however, uh, the main company uh, culture, so to speak, of like things like uh, hustle and grind culture can also be mm-hmm. something that can break the team, even if the team trusts themselves. Um, so pushing people until they break uh, turns out is not very sustainable. <laughs> right. <laughs> so um, and this is going to sound uh, interesting, I guess. But one of the ways that you can actually help prevent um well, I guess we can still dive into the hustle ground culture part. The, the the manager should be somebody still fielding some of these requests that come in that are like pushing people to to hustle, right? And so that can only happen if you, like they're they're providing the shield for you. As engineers, you still have to go in and write. Now that you've had time bought for you and you can deliver in a sustainable way, that's not going to burn you out. You still have to code quality code. That's code you would be uh, willing to uh, commit and know that it's going to not ruin the lives <laughs> of your coworkers should you have to disappear. So you still have to be thoughtful on how you deliver your own code um, and uh, consider, like, even if, like, the faster you deliver code and the faster you push to deliver code, the buggier it's going to be. You're not going to think about it as much. You're going to miss a couple of things. You're going to miss some edge cases. You're going to miscommunicate because you're in a rush. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then that code, when it fails, someone has to be on call to fix it, especially if it's very important. So that when that happens, someone's on call. They work extra hours than they anticipated. That ruins their next day because they worked longer or depending on the nature of the disaster could cause much more than just a couple of hours of work. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's going to cascade too. So uh, that hustle and grind culture, I understand what people say when we re- read these colorful LinkedIn posts about, ah, oh, I did this today. I woke up at four in the morning. I got that. I got this, all, all this stuff done. You got to hustle. You got to grind to get things done. And that's why I'm a millionaire. You know, you see all these kind of things like that. Uh, I don't. But, I don't see those in mine. Oh, I, oh I, must, I must not follow the right. <laughs> you must follow the wrong people. I must. I, I don't see no, that. No. It is. It is not. Not just a my feed LinkedIn meme. It's like there's subreddits about like how cringeworthy some of these posts are. It's a thing for sure. Um, the, the one I get a lot is the father tells his daughter to sell the car to like a a used car shop and like collectors blah blah blah. You know, it, it, it's trying to talk to the value of specialization. And I read mm-hmm. it. I'm like, God, this guy's a shitty father. <laughs> I haven't seen that one. <laughs> All right. Um, another interesting thing uh, that I've noticed is um, documentation is uh, incredibly important to the culture of teams. I know it mm. sounds kind of uh, interesting or silly, but uh, or maybe, maybe I'm, I'm wording this kind of colorfully when I say it this way. But I think every day you don't have documentation for either 
your feature or a process that you do, uh, you're like actively hurting your team. So I'm mm -hmm. gonna put that powerful st statement out there because <laughs> you put I, I used to call it attacks. Oh yeah, not writing documentation is a tax on the future members of your team. Like, oh, I, I don't need to write documentation. If somebody has a question, they can just ask me. No, no, no. Asking is a tax. Yes, that's a good way to put it. Um, and, and not just on the team, but your future self, because you mm -hmm. may end up having a process that you learned, and then you move away from that process. And then three months down the line, somebody comes back to you and is like, "Hey, can you get this done?" You're like. Ah, oh, shoot, and you kind of forgot your own process because you knew pieces of it, but not the full thing. And then you spend a lot of rediscovery time relearning that process that you could have just documented the first time and saved time for everybody. Um, I do that all the time. I write down the process <laughs> in, on the wiki, and then people are like, how do you do this? I'm like, uh, I think I wrote it down. And I'm like, let's follow the steps. It's like, sweet, I did it right. <laughs> it worked. It's it's similar to adding a readme to your your code base. Like if you just have like pushed up code on GitHub, and someone's like, "Here's my project," and you don't know how to like install it or set it up after you clone it down, like you, someone has to dig through your code and figure it out, and that's just a pain. So the same thing with like a, a team. Like with, with earlier when we were talking about like um, a single point of failure, you don't want that like bus factor. Mm -hmm. uh, you're you're still doing this. You're doing something similar if you know a process at your company. And you're the only one or one of the only ones who knows it. And especially if it's not written down when you're gone, what do other people do? They have to do the same discovery work. You end up like not just uh, putting pressure on your team to do your work that you were the one doing when you're gone, but also you're slowing down the team from other deliverables and slowing down your projects deliverables and eventually the company's deliverables is the, like these things that the tax eats away piece by piece. Mm -hmm. Right. So uh, your future self will thank you. Your friends, your colleagues will thank you. Document your processes, especially the ones that are really strange processes or like very complex ones that only you know how to do. Um, uh, drop the ego with job security. <laughs> Document it. Share what you're doing. It's going to make everyone's lives a lot easier. Yeah, one uh, an early manager had a great saying uh, that's always worth keeping in mind. Not exactly a teamwork thing, but he said, um, "If you can't be fired, you can't be promoted either." Interesting. <laughs> like if there's stuff that only you know how to do, that's, that gets you some job security, but it also, they can't promote you. How would they promote you? They, nobody knows how to do what you do. That is a hilarious double-edged sword I've never considered. <laughs> that's a good one. All right, what's next on our list here? Uh, well, so we've been talking about teams, what makes them good or bad, and how company culture can impact that. And then the next thing we wanted to talk about was signs that the that the winds are changing. Like, so you're on mm -hmm. a good team and it's looks like it's going to start going bad, or you're on a bad team, and hey, maybe it's it's getting better, and so you should stick around because it's on the upswing. Mm -hmm. So, what kind of things bring that massive, or what are signs of change that you should be paying attention to if you're on a team, especially a bad team? Uh, mm -hmm. What would you be paying, looking for when you're trying to decide, do I stay or do I go? Because if you stay, there could yeah. be trouble. But if you go, it could be double. Oh, my God, Jeffrey. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, well, okay. My answer for this, I'm, <laughs> uh, I'm hoping uh, for a little bit of insight from you from this, because I know in my role, I've been 
kind of heads down and I feel like I've been caught in the current a few times and not been able to see the bigger picture and see the, the winds of change. But I have noticed some interesting uh, patterns, I guess. Um, and one of them is kind of not a super relevant, I guess, mm -hmm. or maybe it is. But I have noticed that um, once your company starts making a lot of money, uh, there does tend to see, seem to be a little bit of corruption <laughs> uh, in the process. Uh, I, I feel like teams get spun up randomly. People get moved around for brand new projects that the new the new uh, head of product has dreamed up that was just hired. You see like a huge shift in company culture immediately when there's a lot of money coming in. Uh, and I've seen at least two companies where teams and cultures got kind of ruined really fast after a bunch of money started rolling in. Um, mm -hmm. That's the the scale up period. Uh, so mm -hmm. you have some company, you know, in the startup period, you are highly cash constrained and you're limited to building off of the things that are most important and most necessary to get, to get going. And then at some point you hit the inflection Mm -hmm. Either you get a ton of venture capital based off of what they think you're going to do, or you're just making money, right? You've got that product market fit and you're making money uh, and the money's rolling in. And so they go on a hiring spree because they want to go public. And they're like, that's absolutely, that's known to obliterate uh, company culture and sinks many, many companies uh, the, the scale up period where, you know, they start growing for the sake of an exit. Mm -hmm. So it's like, oh, well, we need to be a, you know, we're, we're making $100 million a year. We're a $100 million company now. Or, you know, we're making $30 million a year. We're a $100 million company now. Uh, our early investors want uh, want to get their money out. So we need to be a billion-dollar company. So we need to 10x everything. So we're going to hire a lot of people to drive revenue. And that will destroy culture in an instant. Um, and the number one way, I guess the number one window changes, new managers. Yeah. New directors, new manager, like anybody new above you is going to have a massive impact uh, on company culture because they're going to come in and almost everyone is going to try and change things mm -hmm. for what they see is better, but it will be a change. Uh, and it may be better, right? If, if things are bad, many times the people they bring in will, will make things better. Many times they're just going to make things different, which may be worse for you. And depending upon where you are and how you like things. Mm -hmm. The other thing that's going to happen is they're going to just start hiring lots of people. And when you're trying to hire lots of people, you start hiring for, you, you hire more for skills and less for personality. You know, how, how would a manager who's been on the job for a month know if somebody is going to be a bad fit on their team? Mm. That's a really good point. Yeah, you end up being looser because of so much pressure to hire and grow. You get looser with who you hire and seeing if they actually fit your company culture. And then they don't. And they end up kind of shaking things up a bit. Right. And just the sheer number of people will dilute the company culture of whatever it was. If you mm -hmm. have a 100-person company and you hire one new person a month, right? You're, that's a 12% annual growth rate. If you are trying to hire... 100 people in that year, that's a 100% growth rate. Those new 100 new people are going to, you're going to have a, it's just like snow globe. You're going to throw it all in the air and who <laughs> knows what kind of company you're yeah. going to have at the end because you don't have that steady, slow thing of teaching people how we do it here.
And again, that can be good or yeah. bad, depending upon how things are today. But it's definitely winds of change. That that kind of goes back to my conversation on trust too, because that, that reminds me of um, in, a, in a previous role, I had 10 managers across four years mm. uh, and some of them shifting faster towards the later years. And it happened so frequently that um, I wasn't able, that, that there was no trust that my team would be the same. They would, they would shuffle managers. They would decide, oh, we're going to do this, this with this team. We're going to move these people to this team. And if you can't trust that the same product situation or people are going to be there the next day because of how much the, the company is growing, um, then it's also kind of hard to deliver or, or be focused on one particular outcome. Because you're like, well, you, you can almost see it becoming a joke. Oh, well, tomorrow we'll have somebody else <laughs> and we're going to go a different direction. Because like you said, there's change. But just because somebody's moving doesn't necessarily mean they're moving in the right direction. It's like this illusion again, this illusion of progress, because they've shaped, they've they've changed this uh, team as they see fit because they just came in. But it doesn't necessarily mean it's a good change yet. And you can't really understand there's a pattern if your team shifts so frequently that you can't. Um, it's almost like, well, like measuring velocity on, on, from a sprint perspective, right? Mm-hmm. Where you you have to it still takes like six months to get a good understanding of what your normal deliverable rate is, what your velocity rate is, and if your team keeps shifting every month, then your velocity gets screwed up. You can't really measure anything. No, I never thought of it. Yeah, I mean velocity, it's very much a in my mind it's a nonsense metric. But <laughs> you you would need a if it was going to have some validity, you would definitely need to have months and months of everybody on the team being the same. Mm-hmm. And I rarely see that. Right. So even if you think velocity itself is a nonsense metric, just the concept of some kind of measurable pace in general mm-hmm. is what I'm getting after. You can't have a measurable pace if uh, your your pace <laughs> uh, is, is unpredictable and random depending on the, the people you surround yourself with and those people change frequently. You'll never know how far you're going to get it. Is your rate, you know, it's like wildly bumping up and down the miles per hour on your treadmill. <laughs> when will I be there? I don't really know. <laughs> yeah. Are you going to leave the settings alone? No. Well, then who knows? Right. Um, and if you find yourself in a state where the winds of change are blowing hard and you, you know, and you want to stick it out, which isn't always a given. It's good to keep the end goal uh, of what you want in mind, not, oh, well, I, you know, this team had a manager and the manager brought the trust. Mm-hmm. Well, you want to ma- you want to get to a state where you can trust the manager. So changing managers is good in that case, right? If the winds have blown a new manager your way, great. Maybe this is a person that can be trustworthy because mm-hmm. they've blown the old one away. <laughs> You've brought in new teammates that gives you if you've got a relatively low amount of trust upon a team bringing in somebody new that immediately gives you the ability to start building trust with that person because you don't right. have the baggage of the past uh and everyone can do that and if you can get some of the people you know let's say half the people are very working towards trust and the other half are just solo cowboys you any new person gives you an opportunity to try and shake up the culture again. The other thing you should do is, is 
keep your steps small. Like any changes you want to make, you got to have to keep them small so that they're easy to implement and also mm -hmm. make them low risk so that they're easy to abandon. If you want to start, you know, there's a new hire and you're going to pair with this person every day, all, you know, and you want somebody to pair with this person every day, all day. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's, you're only doing it with the new person as an experiment for, you know, this new onboarding technique or whatnot. It's easy to stop pairing and just stop doing it. You're not saying, <laughs> oh, oh, no, everybody on the team is going to pair all day, every day from now on. It's, right. we'll go get it with this one person. It's an experiment. It's a small change because it's only one person on the team. And you need a way to measure progress. Uh, this is something that I found is a corrosive effect on a, on a high-performing team. I've been on many, several high-performing teams where we switched to kind of a Kanban style. We're just going to work on the most important stuff and we're not going to have sprints and we're not, you know, and it's continuous delivery. So we do a story, we release the story, we move on to the next highest story. Uh, and we end up in this long now, this eternal now of, oh, well, we're just working. And because we, we lose mm. sight of the progress. Because we never stop and celebrate. Oh, well, what did we do in this last sprint? Well, we're not sprinting. Ah, I see. And so we don't track things like, oh, well, how many stories have we released? What new things in the last quarter have gone out? Where were we six months ago? Versus what, like, a common one that I people like to track is, how much time were we spending fighting bugs six months ago versus how much time we're we spending now? Right. But if you don't stop, if you don't track that stuff and stop and look back, you're just in this current now of, oh, well, there's still bugs. We're still working bugs. We haven't made any progress. But if you look back, you're like, oh, whoa, whoa. Last year, this time, we were doing 50% bugs. Now we're at a third of our time is on bugs. That's huge progress. Mm -hmm. But there's still a lot of bugs. And so that incremental change, you lose it if you aren't measuring and watching for it. Got you. You don't want to use uh, velocity to measure your progress? <laughs> you, you could use velocity, but you mean, how about acceleration and deceleration? <laughs> yeah. yeah, the progress is a big one for me because like, I like seeing what I've built and taking pride in what I've built. And if I'm constantly in a state of motion to where I'm just working and not reflecting on what I've built or like maybe even like how customers are enjoying the products, you know, um, then I can I can see myself getting either burned out or just kind of losing sight of the big picture and just kind of like being in this weird factory kind of phase where I'm just like, here's the thing in front of me, tink, 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 next. And it's like <laughs> turning out stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's important to step back and take a look around. Well, all right. Um, any other last thoughts here for, uh, before we wrap this up? Uh, I'd like to make an appeal for guests. If you have been in a rewrite recently or you're thinking about a rewrite or you even had a successful rewrite, we, we would love to talk to you, especially if you've been involved in a successful rewrite. <laughs> uh, I've rarely ever seen that. Uh, I'd love to hear about your experience. Uh, other than that, uh, thanks for listening. I'm Jeffrey Sherman. And I'm Isaac Askew. And this is Never Rewrite.